This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hello, traders, and welcome to this very special 2020 edition of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer. Happy New Year and Happy New Decade. It's actually New Year's Eve as I'm recording this, but I'm uh, just going to go ahead and assume the world didn't come to an end in the next 12 hours. So, uh, yeah, we continue to be on holiday hiatus over here at Top Step HQ, which means I am still recording this introduction from my wife's closet. But that doesn't mean we don't have an exciting, brand new episode for you all today. Jeff will be sitting down with John Nyhoff in the studio, not in my wife's closet. John is an assistant professor of finance at Lewis University and a principal focusing on derivatives education and consulting at John Nyhoff Consulting. He's also written three books on finance and trading, including the CME's Risk Management Handbook. So retail traders, this interview is definitely right up your alley. Hopefully, you'll be able to use some of John's advice in the new year. But before we get started, I just wanted to remind everyone out there that we are still gathering responses for our 2020 listener survey. Just go ahead and take that at topsteptrader.com slash listener survey. That's topsteptrader.com slash listener survey. There you can take the short multiple choice questionnaire and you will be rewarded with both an improved Limit Up podcast in 2020 and also perhaps a $100 Amazon gift card because we'll be drawing 10 lucky winners from the people that take the survey. So be sure to go do that. Uh, so in the meantime, please enjoy today's interview between Jeff Carter and John Nyhoff. I'll see you at the end with a little more housekeeping. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Limit Up podcast on Top Step Trader. My name is Jeff Carter. You can find me online at pointsandfigures.com or on Twitter at pointsandfigures. Just a side note, I'm raising money for the National World War II Museum at gofundme.com to name a room after the unknown soldier. Um, at their new hotel, the Higgins Hotel. And if you could support that and share it with your friends, that would be great. We welcome to the program today, John Nyhoff. He was on the trading floor running a desk for Mitsubishi for years. He was upstairs and he has 30 years of experience in futures. And um, he uh, now is a professor of finance at Lewis University. Welcome to the program, John. Hey, good morning, Jeff. It's uh, great to reconnect with you. We knew each other while we were on the floor. What was your badge? Uh, I was N-E-J. You know, I did something real creative. My initials back. Yeah. Found out in Swedish, it meant no. So, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, so nothing on the OM exchange. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you were different than me. So I was a pit trader, local trading my own money. You ran a desk. So can you tell people kind of what your job was day to day? Well, day to day job was to make contact with our institutional customers. Uh, being one of the larger banks in the world, uh, we had our, our bank, obviously, as uh, one of our predominant customers. But we also had a variety of affiliates of the bank and a variety of other institutional entities, uh, predominantly of a Japanese flavor, but also European flavor from the, the insurance industry, some pension funds. Uh, and our job was to communicate market information to these people, make trade recommendations, hopefully encourage them to trade with us and uh, uh, 
uh, you know, survive from day to day. I see. And what were their goals? Like, how did you cultivate those customers? And and then what were they trying to accomplish? Well, the bank customers, it was kind of interesting. I mean, you thought we were working with two principal groups, both the speculative group and a hedge group. Seemed that the, the hedge group may have actually done more speculation than the traditional speculation group. So our main purpose was to provide them with trading ideas to generate profits. Um, I think, you know, the same thing on uh, the, the other institutional customer base. We were looking to provide them perhaps with some basic hedge strategies. Again, market flavor about where we thought the dollar market was because we principally concentrated on euro dollars and uh, treasury futures. So they were they were looking for points of entry and points of exit. And with different locals on the floor, even people that are trading on Top Step Trader, they're kind of, they'll, they'll chart, they'll pick a point. And, you know, even when I was on the floor, there were not a lot of people that had overnight positions. There were some. What was the time horizon for these institutional traders in general when they put a trade on? It could have been anywhere from several days to multiple months. I mean, not to to be a little facetious here, but sometimes it all depends on how well the trade worked out, uh, given, given the capital base of some institutions. I think they they exhibited some of the tendencies that you see of a lot of novice traders. That is, they got into a position to turn bad, and then they turned into the prayer rug approach, hoping <laughs> it would come back. And uh, yeah. they get married to sometimes they would get married to a position because they didn't want to realize the loss. And I can think of several occasions where there were some huge mark to market losses, and because of the capability to sustain a position over time, it eventually came back and worked wonderfully. And I, but I'm thinking that's not an approach that uh, most traders should try and attempt. Hope is not a trade. So when they got married to trades and you thought they should take a loss, what were the conversations with them like? Like, how did you talk to them and how did you sort of work with them? Most of the time, these conversations would be taking place with head traders and they were somewhat adamant sometimes. They just didn't want to hear about the bad trades. We knew they had them. They know they had them. And, and they were just saying that, that sometimes they would actually, you know, scale in on as it was moving against them and add to positions because they were convinced. But again, I think that's a function of how much capital do you have to trade with? And again, with larger institutions, sometimes they, you know, they don't want you know, again, you have to remember we were dealing with uh, a Japanese populace, so there was a, a face-saving mode, um, and I think it was rather remarkable that uh, sometimes these positions were developed as a consensus within the institution. So it wasn't just say the head trader admitting they were wrong; it would be you know their senior management perhaps admitting they were wrong, and they just just were not want to do that. Yeah, interesting. So there was always this notion in the pit that around this time of year, um, bonuses would be hit. You know, if if some trader at some desk did really well, they'd get a bonus from their hedge fund or their um, institution. And so they would slow down their trading. Was that true or or not? Not for the institutions that we dealt with, because I don't think their compensation levels were, or their total compensation packages were tied 
that significantly to trading performance. Uh-huh. I think a lot of these folks we dealt with were on a particular career path that they were hoping to graduate uh, senior management, which meant more of an oversight as opposed to a trading responsibility. Uh, so if, if there was opportunities, they were there. It didn't matter whether, you know, you hit uh, Thanksgiving or you were halfway through December. If the market uh, developed in such a manner that they could profit from it, hey, they were willing to jump in with both feet. Right. Interesting. Um, that's cool. So what, you know, reflecting back on your 30 years there, what, what was like one of the most amazing things you saw and maybe one of the scariest things you saw? You know, I think going back to the early days, if we went back to when euro dollars really started to take off in the late 80s and we were still on the lower trading floor to see how people would literally fall out of the pit during a period of, mark, you know, heightened market activity. And you thought you were, you know, dealing with somebody that you could flash an order into. And next thing you know, they're almost laying on the ground. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, there was competition for space. And we were, before we moved to the upper trading floor, we were tremendously space constrained. I think you can recollect probably what that environment was like. And uh, it was just, I, I don't know, for lack of a better way to describe it, it was we actually get business done in this particular fashion. Uh, and, and we weren't. Again, we were we were more of the trading type often where we would not be continual traders and we'd come in and execute for size intermittently and all of a sudden they have a big order and you're looking in the pit and you know the clerks or the broker you were trying to communicate with, you know, were what to be kind, you know, significantly disrupted. It was uh it's kind of different than the current method of trading. <laughs> yeah, how about it? <laughs> What was the scariest thing you ever saw on the floor? Uh, I think the scariest things when you knew you executed a trade incorrectly. I mean, you know, as, as careful as you hit, you were and as many checks and balances there were, if all of a sudden you were dealing with, say, a, a multiple thousand lot order and you realize, oh, my God, I did this wrong. Uh, <laughs> And then you're, you know, then you're trying to rapidly rectify it and, you know, not, uh, you know, lose too much money in the process. That's probably from a, from a, a, a desk perspective, that's probably the scariest thing. And I think most important, the first time it happens and you think, oh my God, I'm getting fired as soon as this happened. Uh, and, and to realize that, you know, we, we had tremendous management, uh, and, you know, it's like, hey, stuff happens. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't, uh, you know, the loss was considerable from anybody's perspective, but it wasn't enough to, you know, have to shut the doors. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. I have a side story on that. It's like today, if you were doing that on a computer, even even you could triple check it and still have a fat finger, right? Sure. Um, and be left with the same problem. And when I was a clerk, in the euro dollar options, this is back in 1986. Okay, so the euro dollar options are trading like a big day was 15,000 options, and this guy had come over from the board of trade to the Merck, and instead of using Merck hand signals, he used board of trade hand signals. Oh, that could be dangerous. And he goes, he says, he says, uh, like you know, 42 puts or calls or something. I can't remember the exact strike. What's here? And I gave him one bit of two, and he said, I'll never forget this. He said, pay two on 2,000, which 
I leaned to my broker and I said, hey, pay two on 2000. And the broker looked at me and he didn't say check it. He just executed. And everybody's trying to sell premium. So they're like, sold, sold, sold. And then, of course, they're hedging them in the futures. And there's all this noise. And I go, two on 2000, you're filled. And the blood drained out of this guy's face. And he's like, two on 200. I go, no, that's a thousand here, buddy. And he's like, oh. So we had to scramble to get out of them. <laughs> yeah, I can uh, fathom. I'm, I was in similar circumstances on more than one occasion where something to that effect uh, transpired. Yeah. So that's, that's awfully scary. And so your partner on the desk was the chairman for a while of the Mercantile Exchange, Scott well, Gordon. Well, that's kind of kind to say Scott Gordon was my partner. But yeah. Well, I mean, my colleague on the desk. So yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so yeah, Scott and I, we, we worked together probably for the better part of 16, 17 years. Yeah. What was that like to have uh, a guy that was kind of in Merck politics uh, working with you on the desk? Well, I mean, he was always in Merck politics. He probably was at the desk during, you know, morning hours, better part of half the day. And, uh, and then when typically after London closed, things would slow down and then you know, effectively, you could say Scott was really in charge during the early days. And then when he left, I would take over that responsibility. So it was, uh, I mean, that was a, it was a great relationship. He was, uh, how should we put this kindly? He was a much more seasoned individual in, in the realm of the futures industry because uh, he started, uh, I don't know, perhaps maybe at least on the floor. He had about 10 years worth of experience before I ever moved down to the I already had multiple years, but most of my experience was either upstairs doing research or upstairs doing institutional brokering. So he really was ungodly in terms of help, in terms of making my transition from an upstairs environment to a, a floor-based environment. Interesting. Interesting. And he runs Rosenthal now, I think. Well, he just recently retired. Did so, he? Uh, yeah. Oh, good I actually had lunch with Scott, I think, all of two days ago. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's great. And so you transitioned off the floor. What are you doing now? Well, now I'm a, a university professor. So uh, after spending, uh, I think it was approximately 31 years, either upstairs or downstairs in different capacities in the futures industry, I uh, uh, kind of was encouraged to seek other opportunities a, a number of years ago during one of the downsizings at CME Group. Uh, and I'd always uh, taught classes on the side. I think for about 15 years, I taught the intro or intermediate options class when the CME used to have their education institute. Uh, and I've taught a number of classes, either at the Paul or IIT, um, you know, and basically derivatives classes that included futures options and swap uh, theory and trading strategies. So, uh, and I think, you know, you get to at some point in your life, you want to have a little bit more free time and being a full time. It's like I used to tell some of my friends who are in academia. It's not like you guys have a real job. So I. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, in my capacity at Mitsubishi, a lot of times, you know, on a short week, we'd be working 50 hours, sometimes 55, 60 hours and taking phone calls in the middle of the night. So this idea of teaching three or four classes a semester and, uh, uh, you know, I, it's like, I was talking to somebody the other day. I only get four weeks off for Christmas this year. And then, you know, I got to wait a month and a half to have spring break. And then another eight weeks to have three and a half months off in the summer. It's, I tell you, it's a tremendously difficult transition. 
I mean, it's, it's nice to have something that keeps your mind busy, that you, you work with some interesting uh, younger folks, and, uh, and but you have a remarkable amount of free time, or and you can set your schedule. If you need to read something, if you feel like reading at 10 o'clock at night, hey, you put your time in as opposed to, hey, I've got to be in an office from 8 to 5 or 6. Right. So, so your students entered the um, CME Trading Challenge. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the CME Trading Challenge, I think, is a tremendous opportunity for people who want to get uh, their feet wet in a, a more, I say, I guess you could say, a pro- professional paper trading environment. Yeah. Uh, CME um, works with CQG, I think, in this particular uh, go round, and uh, they provide uh, you know technical analysis, analytics, provide real time uh, data feeds. You know, basically treat the folks, uh, the students that participate, just like they're, uh, you know, professional traders. Uh, they, they put some risk limits in for them and give them a million dollar account and say, hey, go to it for the next month and let's see how you do. And I think, as I mentioned to you briefly before, I think I should have had these kids managing my money. because <laughs> they, they made somewhere about 17 to 18 percent profit over the course of the month. But. That said, they weren't uh, good enough to place in the top three amongst the various student groups that uh, participated. Amazing. So I, thought, I thought the results were astounding myself. <laughs> and and you have to be a student at a university that participates in this, correct? Yeah, you have to be either an undergraduate or a graduate student. You need a professor to act as your moderator of sorts, but effectively you give an account number to the students and they just... Uh, or off on their own if they want to seek advice. I think a couple of times they asked uh, about, you know, some basic risk management strategies. Uh, other than that, uh, they were just gung-ho to trade and they were trading some things I don't think I would ever get involved with. I think, <laughs> I think I, most of the profits came out of trading Bitcoin futures. So, oh my gosh, uh, that's crazy. So it's, uh, so hey, good luck and God bless on that one. I was trying to tell them how to trade euro dollars and bonds and that wasn't uh, juicy enough for me. The Bitcoin space is very, very interesting to me. I, I, uh, you know, as a venture capitalist, we're investors in OpenFinance.io, which trades securitized tokens. Um, and then I invested in a company called Cover.ai, which is uh, insurance on the blockchain. And today I just bought uh, this thing for just giggles. It's called Helium. I'm going to plug it in and see. We'll see. We'll see what it's all about. But it's a very interesting space to me. Did these people trade futures and options, uh, or just futures, or just options? It was just futures. They didn't have the capacity during this uh, simulated trading session to allow options trading for some reason. But they indicated they hoped to evolve to allow that possibility during the next year or two. Uh, so, but it was yeah, it was you know between you know, for the fences uh, and whatever they thought the most volatile products that they could manage were. So what classes are you teaching right now? I mean, just in general. I think for some reason they thought I knew something about derivatives. So I teach a, a, <laughs> I teach a class over here in futures and options, but I also teach investment classes, you know, on either side of my floor-based experience, I worked in the research department at CBOT or CME group, and we were 
always investigating new products. So right. I work predominantly in uh, both fixed income and equity uh, market research. So picked up a few skills in that particular capacity. So I try to relay that to the students and what do you think the benefit to a trader understanding the academic principles behind all this stuff is? Because, for example, you know, back in the day when, you know, you're a local, a lot of us just showed up and, you know, you didn't have any background in economics or finance or anything like that. You just went into the pit and you started trading. I mean, um, take me for an example. I, I knew macro and micro econ. I had taken a principles of finance course at the University of Illinois, which gave me the principles of finance, but it certainly wasn't specialized into derivatives or anything like that. I mean, I did know what an interest rate was, but I certainly didn't know how to calculate it. Um, but, and I just traded, you know, um, what advantage do you think traders today would have by having the academic knowledge? Well, I, I think it depends on what your perspective is. I think you've got, you can probably bifurcate the uh, traders in, in terms of people are in for, you know, extremely short-term durations, almost even if they're still point and click, uh, you know, quasi-algorithmic, and you have people who are positioned traders who are in for the longer term. I'm not sure that uh, a lot of academic background helps anybody from the, uh, the pure short-term trading standpoint. I think, you know, sometimes you can develop a feel for the market. Uh, you, you obviously have to understand the new, uh, you know, a little bit of the nuance of the particular contracts that you're trading. But, you know, delving deeply academically uh, probably doesn't lend too much assistance. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you're going to be more of a position trader following trends, following macroeconomic uh, trends, then it probably helps to have a little bit better, I guess, institutional knowledge, a little bit better technical knowledge about just, you know, major indicators, major trends, major government policies, how it relates domestically to internationally, because there's spillover effects from, you know, that's the thing I think I had the hardest time uh, thinking about early days as I was, you know, U.S. dollar, U.S. market focused and came to realize, my God, Asia and Europe actually happen to be relatively important in this context. So understanding the interrelationships, uh, I mean, from a risk management or portfolio management standpoint, if you're, if you're responsible for managing a great deal of money, then having a few more quantitative skills and understanding how to use uh, whatever technique, I should say technology to help manage your positions becomes important. So, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, and I mean, Back when we were sort of in the euro dollar pit, Japan was, you know, sort of that part of the world that they were the force. And of course, you know, London and, and the EU and then the, the Iron Curtain falls and China rises um, and China is such a force now. So understanding the relationships between everybody is key, I think, if you're going to position trade, you know, a contract like euro dollars or U.S. treasuries or something like that. Oh, definitely. I mean, you have to understand who's the who's the major users of the markets. I mean, how much do they control? Uh, it helps to have a wide enough customer base to understand when somebody has an inkling that they want to make a substantive readjustment to a position. And you can almost kind of, you know, read the tea leaves about what might transpire as a consequence. And, you know, 
It's the funny thing about reading tea leaves, though. Sometimes you hit it right on the head, and other times you totally misinterpret. So. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, happened to me a lot. You know, the euro dollar is going to go away, and it was introduced in '81 at the at the CME to represent the LIBOR rate, the London Interbank Rate, and that was heavily manipulated in the 08 crisis. Um, a lot of guys I knew were still trading it, and they couldn't figure out why rates weren't going up at the time. Um, what do you make of the end of LIBOR, and do you think CME is going to be able to make the switch to the new contract that they're um, listing, or do you think there's an opportunity for somebody like Richard Sandor to come through with his Ameribor contract and take market share? You know, I mean, the the thing is, you can never say never about what the transition is. But I think, you know, if you look at where the CME has a major toehold, it's they are finally clearing a fair amount of over-the-counter interest rate swaps. Uh, I think the, to that extent, you know, the typical language that's tossed out is they offer a lot of capital efficiency to major institutions in terms of pairing off uh, the futures versus the OTC cleared product. It would seem to be that uh, I don't, I'm not sure that Richard Sandor's outfit is going to be the the main competitor. I'd be more concerned about uh, ICE in terms of their clearing facility for swaps and uh, perhaps they put, can get a toehold and offer some capital efficiencies in that dimension if they pair up uh, in that dimension. But I, I still think you know, CME is the, the party to defeat. I'm, I'm, yeah, no doubt. No doubt about it. I, th- I think when you, you're talking about capital efficiencies, w- you can trade the entire yield curve um, with the U.S. Treasury. Yeah, complex, plus you can and then cross margin treasuries. The, and right, I, I don't right. think you know nobody's going to pull the treasury market away from CME Group. No, yes, the the all-in possibility of pairing things off and gaining capital efficiencies they, that seems to be the method of, to the madness in terms of where you want to trade. Right. Plus, you can cross margin into the equities and then all the other stuff forex. So, sure. Um, yeah, just a teaser for people that are listening. Richard Sandor is going to be on this podcast soon. I'm sure Richard will probably choose to differ with that. Assessment. Yeah, I'm sure he will. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what's interesting is he created, you know, those interest rate contracts at the CBOT. You created and did research on contracts at both CBOT and the CME. What goes into making up a good contract? Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, is there truly market demand? You know, the, the thing you have to overcome is uh, everybody says they'll use a new contract. Uh, right. They do, don't they? <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, but, but the problem is, you know, is, uh, you know, it's the old adage. If they build it, will they really come? I mean, that's that's the, dif- that's the real difficulty. I think, you know, when I think some of the more easily accomplished tasks, and this isn't in the early days, but in the lot more recent vintages, if you, if you find a couple institutional participants who really have customer demand and they're willing to support the contract, that makes life incredibly easy. And when you pull a rabbit out of the hat and you say, hey, this sounds like a great idea, and you go talk to people, and but at the end of the day, if no one truly demonstrates that they have a, an absolute need for this, then you're kind of, you know, you're, you're fishing in a pond where there just aren't really any fish. Right. Right. Yeah, I can remember contracts we launched at the Merck that seemed great on paper that just never went anywhere. Agency Futures is one that I I recall. Um, The DIFF contracts seem to be a really cool contract. Oh, we we tried inflation futures and things of that nature. It just, 
they just didn't come to pass. Uh, I mean, they're all, and one of the difficulties you find is a lot of contracts tend to be uh, one-sided. It's easy to find uh, the sellers in a certain environment. Nobody in their right mind wants to buy. So it's, it takes two to tango, so that's sometimes a difficult matchmaking process. You you do have to have natural buyers and natural sellers, and then market makers that are willing to come in. Which, if there's natural buyers and natural sellers, will market makers flock to a contract, or what do they need to see? You think to incent them to come into a contract to trade it? Well, if you have natural buyers and sellers, and there's order flow from the get-go on market makers, you know, for the most part will make markets in anything. And then obviously they adjust the spread until they think there's sufficient flow. But as long as you have some kind of flow, uh, there always seems to be uh, some market making entity that's adventurous enough to want to participate. Uh, That's, but again, the difficulty you have is you launch a contract, there's almost no uh, outside order flow coming in, and maybe you got one market maker trying to pick off another for a little while. That's uh, that's not sustainable. Right. No, not at all. And in some of the futures contracts today with the consolidation of the industry, um, there's relatively few market makers making markets in some of these contracts. Yeah, well, the thing is, you've seen that as, you know, I think it's, you can draw analogies to a lot of different industries as industry mature or as yeah. industries mature and uh, markets get a little bit more efficient. Uh, the strong survive and people who were dependent upon uh, relatively easy layups, uh, they fall to the wayside. And so you get concentration. I think what you're seeing is you get a more concentrated market making environment. But that makes for an interesting competitive advantage because again if you went back to your and my early days in the industry you know used to hold people to walk into a pit to make markets and just do things for a short bit of time uh and i think you used to do the same thing in the early days of market making used to try and convince the market makers this was for the good of the industry and then the exchanges went public and and the market makers said well you know you're in it to make a profit we need to make money too and a dynamic changes after a while yeah right that's for sure and uh, you know, you just saw today the news is that Schwab is buying TD Ameritrade in a in a I don't know, is it a forty billion dollar or twenty five billion dollar I didn't see the headline number but you know consolidation is happening across the industry for a lot of reasons um, efficiency is one of them but yeah that was an that was an interesting news that came out today yeah I think that was one of the reasons Schwab may have you know launched this idea of free trading is there. You know, they're, they're more a bank than they are a broker at this particular point in time. So they're not commi- that commission dependent, whereas I think TD is uh, substantively more dependent. And, you know, you just can't compete if you don't if you lose 30 or 40 percent of your revenue stream. Yeah. What's interesting is creative destruction happens. So uh, Robinhood came on the scene and offered zero zero commissions to people. And really is making a dent in the in the brokerage industry right now, um, which causes everybody to go to zero commissions um, to compete so that they keep customers. And then, of course, they sell their order flow and stuff and figure out ways to make it on the back end. But um, you really, to, to compete at scale, you need a lot of assets in, in the bank um, to offer sort of your top line revenue driver at free. <laughs> Uh, that's it. I mean, you know, hopefully, I mean, I think, you know, you look at it from the standpoint, hey, you don't have to pay us if you're going to actually trade. But uh, again, it's just like most brokers still put on the 
their best salesmanship tools to try and convince you you got to pay them management fees to manage your money uh, better than what you could do yourself. So yeah, 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 yeah. That's for sure. It's uh, it's interesting. So, what do you think? Like, where do you see the future of the futures industry going? What you know, if you had to make like two or three predictions of stuff that's going to happen that hasn't happened yet, what what do you see happening? Yeah, you know, I, I think you prospectively, depending upon the regulatory environment, could see, I mean, even more consolidation than what you currently have. I mean, again, you just mentioned the old economies of scale argument. Uh, you know, one of the biggest and most expensive deliverables is the trading platform and, you know, increasing speed to the extent, you know, speed of transaction can be enhanced. So that may be uh, one particular dimension that continues to take place in spite of how much it's taken place over the last 15 years. I think a couple other things is that you, you may see some of the, the lesser contracts uh, no longer exist in a pure futures environment, and maybe you see a little bit more dominance in, in terms of the, the benchmark contracts as uh, futures become uh, more entrenched as a, a necessary risk uh, transfer tool. Uh, you know, one of the things I think you've seen, and maybe this goes even further, is look at what's happened in the option space. You went from, I think, when we started where an option expired every three months to introduce serials, and then you went to weeklies and month ends, and now you've got Monday and Wednesdays. So I think, you know, it's, it's, to the extent bandwidth increases and market makers are willing, you're going to have daily expiries of these, not just in the dominant contracts, but uh, or the high volume contracts, perhaps uh, even in some of the lesser contracts. So to that extent, I, I think you, you may see options uh, start to take on a little bit more market share relative to futures in an exchange traded capacity, simply because they may offer tremendously greater time-wise flexibility. So I think those are some of the most obvious things. That, uh, mm -hmm. So one thing that crosses my mind as you, as you talk about that is, an institutional trader, an institutional player like a McDonald's or, you know, somebody like that understands risk. They can fundamentally calculate it for their business. But the average person on the street doesn't. And there is no, I mean, Tasty Trade's done it to a certain point, like trying to educate people about risk um, and how to manage it. But nobody's really turned the key there. And I don't know quite what that looks like. Um, but I think, you know, when you talk about going from sort of quarterly expiration of options to almost daily, that's really um, allowing people to manage risk a lot more efficiently. Um, you see anything like that on the horizon that gets commoditized down to sort of the average mom and pop business? Uh you know, it, it's certainly possible given some sort of technological improvement. But I think, you know, again, let's go back to the point that it takes two to tango. I'm not sure that for smaller business entities where, you know, you maybe have one principal or you've got a, a couple of partners and, you know, they're scratching to make out a, a living that they they really have enough uh, time bandwidth to be that, that concerned about some of those dimensions. So I think there's you can, you can kind of reach down uh, the ladder, so to speak, in terms of uh, size of organizations where risk management tools appeal. But uh, I still think, you know, if you look at most businesses, 
they're not that large. So uh, they just don't have the, the personal capacity in, in order to accomplish something like that. Yeah, I think, I think like, so if I put on my 50-year-in-the-future hat on, um, with the advent of quantum computing and artificial intelligence and things like that, there may be ways to program that where they don't even have to think about it. It's just a software thing that you um, buy monthly that artificially looks at your data from your business and then hedges it. And you don't even think about it. The personal element comes into play though. And I think this is always a, a, a sense of difficulty for a small organization is when do you cede control of a certain element of your business to somebody else? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. So that's, I mean, that perhaps, you know, again, based on, as you're talking about, some major technological changes and improvements that um, that may become commonplace. Again, you know, some of the things you take for granted now uh, were not even thought of or considered to be in, totally incorrect uh, 50 years ago. I mean, look at the difference between active investing and passive investing. So obviously philosophies change and, uh, you know, you you didn't go to the political environments like you know you, you could say how could this unknown ever get elected? Well, hey, you know things happen and sometimes uh, they gain momentum and something you couldn't fathom just occurs. Right, right. It, that the active versus passive thing I think is interesting because it's just about the math. I mean, if you look at returns over the long haul, Fama's sense of passive investing that he proposed in 1962, I believe is finally playing out and, and it's playing out in a big way. Um, as a matter of fact, I was reading an article in Nevada, the guy that runs their pension funds has a very small office, like a school desk, uh, you know, and he invests only passively. He will not do hedge funds. He doesn't do any private equity or venture capital and his returns are beating everybody else's with lower costs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think especially over the course, ever since in the post-financial crisis environment, if you look at the performance of hedge funds and what they're still demanding for compensation relative to their performance track, I mean, you know, I think, you know, you look at one of the, the local outfits, Citadel still seems to be doing pretty well, but the rest of their peers uh, don't seem to be able to truly justify uh, the cost of participating with them. So. Right. No, I agree. And And the interesting thing, you know, is you got to know where your edge is. If your edge is only speed, then that's not a true edge. And I think, you know, in Citadel's case, they've got, you know, invested, you know, billions in technology and speed, but they also invested billions in human capital inside the uh, organization so that they feel like they have the best sort of uh, intelligence to create an edge for themselves. And that maybe is a reason to take a class from you. Uh, yeah, tell them to come on down. Unfortunately, Romeoville's not particularly in the greatest location for the Citadel <laughs> individuals, but it'd be uh, be interesting because I think you know one of the things you always learn is that uh, when you get into an educational environment, hopefully there's a, a two-way flow of information, and it, it's always great to have an industry practitioner in the audience because as much as you think you might know, it's uh, remarkable how many how much your students can teach you at times. 
Well, thank you very much, John, for coming on the program. Um, I really appreciate your time today. And uh, you can find him at Lewis University um, online on LinkedIn and on their website. And uh, I hope you have a great trading day. Thank you very much. Okay, Jeff. Great talking to you. Traders, thank you for making it to the end of yet another episode of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. We hope your 2020 is already off to an incredible start. Next week, we'll be back in the office. All right. And uh, we'll use that opportunity to announce some of the winners of our listener survey. We'll see who got those $100 gift cards. So be sure to tune in for that. We'll also be sure to see you then. In the meantime, namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.